We want to have our hearts set on fire by Christ so that we can set our world on fire for Him. We want our hearts to be on fire. We want to have a burning passion, desire, love for Christ, for His service, for His glory, and then we want to blaze a trail for Him. And we know that involves a few things. Here's what this looks like. It involves first having a passion for Christ and his word. I'm passionate about Jesus. I love him, but I love his word. It involves having compassion for the lost, showing compassion for folks that are lost, dead in their sins, knowing God's called me to reach out to them, having endurance in the faith. Whenever we get busy doing the work of God, we know we're going to face opposition and there are going to be times where we have to make a decision. Either depend on the power of God and move forward or get discouraged, get off the wall, leave the mission. we got to have endurance in the faith and courage in the face of obstacles along those same lines. There are going to be obstacles that we face. Satan's going to attack us. There's going to be obstacles. It's just life. Life happens. It gets difficult. we got to have courage in the face of obstacles, in the face of those opposing the work that God's called us to do. And we have to stay committed to the mission, which is the Great Commission. We are all called to go and make disciples. Now, this morning, we're going to look at Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. I love the book of Luke. He is a historian. He's also a doctor. He is very meticulous in detail in his book. He includes details that the other gospel writers don't. Now, part of the reason for that is that he's a doctor, and he's a historian, and he likes details. Part of the reason is because he's writing his book to Gentiles who have no clue, don't know anything about Jewish customs of the day. So he has to include those things so that they will know what he's talking about when he refers to certain areas of Jewish custom, rituals, things of that nature. Which is great because when you look at the Gospels as a whole, God's sovereignty, inspiring the writers and inspiring his word, it gives us a full picture of Jesus' ministry on earth in the Gospel. The work of the disciples and having some detail about some things in some gospels and not others. And Luke is one of those gospels. We see in one of those detailed accounts, we see Matthew, Levi, who becomes Matthew. We see him come to Christ. We see his conversion. And Luke gives an incredible account of that. Matthew accepting the Lord Jesus Christ. And then immediately his life is changed. He immediately begins to share what he's experienced with the people around him. He becomes a light in his world, in his little world. We see Jesus show compassion on someone that no one else wanted to show compassion on for good reason, as we'll see. But then that person immediately turns around and begins to share that same compassion with other folks. An incredible influence for the gospel Matthew becomes because of what happens. Let's look at verse 27. We're going to read verses 27 through 32 of Luke chapter 5. After this, Jesus went out. He saw a tax collector named Levi who would become Matthew. And today you're going to hear me use both names, Levi and Matthew. It's the same guy. Use both. Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Jesus says to Levi, he says, follow me. Leaving everything behind, he got up and he began to follow him immediately. He goes. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, the healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
in our lives, our goal should be to set our world on fire for Christ, to be a light that shines, to blaze a trail. Part of that is just beginning in our own world, being a light in our world, our immediate world. We will light our world if we realize first that the lost need our love. That's number one. If we want to light the world around us, and that's where we need to start, we need to understand that the lost are in desperate need of our love. Everyone has a spiritual need. Now, some people are more aware of their need than others. Some people are completely clueless to their need. They don't have, they don't have an idea. They don't know that they have a need. And usually it's in times of difficulty where things aren't going well. You know, your job isn't great. Your family's not doing so well. Your health maybe isn't so good. A difficult time, stress, the world kind of is pressing in on you. It's usually in those times, and God uses those circumstances to make us aware of how desperately we need him. And, and a lot of times, it's in those moments where those who don't know Christ realize their need for Christ. It's when they get in a tough situation, life comes crashing in, and, and they realize, hey, I, I have no hope. I, all these things that I was, I was holding on to, that I was taking security from, they're crumbling, and I don't have hope anymore. And so it's in those moments that God can take a person and draw them to himself and, real, and help them realize, I need Christ. I need a Savior. This is where we learn that in those moments, God can turn hopelessness into hope in Christ. I mean, even in the worst situations, the most hopeless, helpless of situations, God can, can intervene and, and point you to him. And I believe that is exactly where we find this guy named Levi. I mean, he's got money, he's got security in terms of material things, but I just believe that he, whatever, for whatever reason in his life, has realized that those things are empty, that there is something missing from his life. He doesn't know what it is yet, but he knows that he's got all this stuff and there is something that's missing. And again, that's a little bit my opinion, but I, I think in his response and I think in the way that Jesus looks intently at him, I think his reaction and how he immediately wanted to bring all those people into that party, I think we see this guy's in desperate need, and he doesn't even know what he needs, but he knows he's in need of something, and that his life is missing something. Matthew, Levi, he was a con artist who worked for the IRS. Now, if you work for the IRS, Roman IRS, I'm not criticizing you. We all have our opinions about tax day, but that's not the subject of this sermon. I do know that the Roman IRS, so to speak, was very corrupt. The system of taxing was incredibly corrupt. Basically, they used what you call tax farming. They would take a district and they would assess its value, much like what they do today. They would say that this value, this, this area needs to be taxed X amount of dollars. Then they would contract with tax collectors. Basically, if you wanted to collect taxes for that area... You would put in a bid or whatever, and if you got selected at the end of the year, that was your area. You had to turn in that amount, X amount of dollars. But if you collected some over that, you got to keep it for yourself. So let's say this area is $2,000. If you collected $4,000, you get to keep two for yourself. So as you can imagine, this was a breeding ground for corruption. It was a breeding ground for extortion. 
And you had three main areas of tax during this time. One was fixed taxes, which basically like the poll tax, you just paid for being alive. There was a percentage you paid just because you were breathing. And then there was what was called a ground tax, which was essentially taxes on, on a tenth of your grain, wine, and oil, tolls for roads, for even shipping for, shipping for harbors, duties on imports and exports. It was not a fixed amount. There was basically a tax, whatever the tax was, if you were traveling or importing or exporting or whatever, you would, you would pay the tax. And then there was income tax, which was set at a percentage, 1% of your income was taxed. Well, it was the second one, the ground tax, that was the one that was the, the most open for extortion, to be manipulated. You combine that with the fact that record keeping in this day was almost non-existent, communication was limited, so even if you were being extorted, it was hard to prove it. There was nothing really you could do about it. I mean, there were all kinds of taxes, taxes on, on harbors and road, roads, tolls for those types of things. If you were traveling down a road, you, you, would, you would be stopped by a tax collector if you were, and he would tax you, first of all, based on the number of wheels you had on your cart. So if you had a four-wheel cart versus a two-wheel cart, you'd pay more taxes. He would tell you to empty out everything in your cart. You would pay taxes on whatever you were transporting. And if you didn't have the money, don't worry, he's going to give you a loan, but, but he's going to charge you an incredible interest rate on that loan, an astronomical interest rate. And so these guys, these tax collectors were not very, very liked. They weren't liked very much. Matter of fact, they were the most hated men in Hebrew culture. I mean, they were just, they were extortionists. They were criminals. They, they were hated. Tax collectors in the Talmud, the, which is the book of Jewish ceremonial law, in civil law, they were classified as robbers. I mean, they were put in the same class as robbers because they were stealing from people. They were taking advantage of people. They were the scum of Jewish society. Honesty was such a rare thing. There's a, a Roman author that, that, that in his writings includes a section where he was amazed as he was traveling. He actually saw a statue to a tax collector that the people had built because it was an honest tax collector. It was such a rare thing. Number one, he was amazed, but also the people were so amazed that they actually built a statue to the guy because these guys just weren't honest. They were known for being corrupt. Tax collectors were easily the most hated people in Jewish society, Hebrew society. Luke 18.11, we see... The Pharisee, we see examples of this through Scripture and, and references to these guys. The Pharisee took his stand and was praying like this. And of course, the focus on this, the Pharisee's praying and, and he's, he's being boastful, arrogant, but still, look at the example he uses. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. Lord, I'm so thankful I'm not like those guys. And then they were put in the same class as prostitutes also. Matthew 21, 32, John came to you, Jesus is speaking, in a way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. The worst of society did believe in him. But you, when you saw it, didn't even change your minds then and believed him. And then they were also compared, put in the same group as pagan Gentiles. Remember, for Jewish, the Gentiles, they were hopeless. There was no hope for those guys. They were the worst Verse 17 of Matthew 18, if he pays no attention to them, tell the church. But if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, tell them, let him be like an unbeliever or a Gentile in the New American Standard Version. A Gentile in who? A tax collector. In other words, an outcast. They're no good. They're worthless. Tax collectors couldn't serve as witnesses in court because you couldn't trust them. Nobody trusted them. 
They couldn't, they couldn't even enter a synagogue because if you're a tax collector, you're just too sinful. All right? I mean, you're just, I mean, obviously you're, you're a criminal. So you couldn't even enter into a synagogue. You're an outcast. This makes Levi, Matthew, the lowest of the low in his day. So now when we understand just how much he was hated, it's easy to understand the drama that unfolds in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and he saw who? He went to see a tax collector. Nobody associated with tax collectors, but Jesus goes and he sees a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. Now that word saw, he's looking at him intently and he's looking at him. Have you ever had anybody look at you and you think, what in the world are they thinking about me right now? I mean, just really, I mean, burning a hole in you with their, with their eyes. That's what Jesus is doing. He's looking at Levi and the wording here means he's, he's looking and basically he's drawing conclusions from what he sees. And so Levi is looking back at Jesus and he's probably sitting there thinking, man, what is this guy? What's this guy thinking? What's he going to do? Jesus looks at him, Levi hated, something's missing from his life, and then he just says, follow me. What does he want? Well, the answer is in the last part of verse 27 and 28. He said to him, follow me, and what does Levi do? Immediately, leaving everything behind, he got up and he began to follow him. And what Luke's saying here, again, the wording here is important because he's making a complete break from his past life. The wording here means to continually follow. And think about it. If you're the tax collector, he's a wealthy guy. This is a money-making business. If he leaves his business, it won't take long for somebody else to step up and take that business. So he's leaving everything. And if it doesn't work out, he can't go back. Nobody's going to help him out because nobody likes him. So he's leaving everything. And the the idea here is that immediately his his life has changed, his heart has changed, and he's going and he's never coming back. No return. No coming back. No, no second chances in terms of, of, hey, I messed up. I'm going to go back to my old life. Can't do that. He's not going to do that. This was incredibly amazing because of all of the people in Capernaum, all the people that Jesus could have chosen to be one of his disciples in this moment, he chooses the person that no one ever in a million years would have picked. Nobody would have pointed a finger at Levi and said, hey, this would be a good candidate for serving the Messiah, for being a disciple, for being one of the instrumental figures in beginning the church, starting the church. Nobody would have, would have said that. No one would have picked him. This is one of the amazing things of Jesus' ministry, and this is what he's been building up to. Luke, again, in, in incredible detail, he's been building up to this. When, when he heals the, the person of, with leper, the leper when he, of leprosy, he, he's making a statement here that he can heal even the most gruesome effects of sin. Yeah, he heals him physically, but beyond that, it's no matter how dirty or how disfigured you are in sin, I can, I can take care of that. And then then after he heals the paralytic, just in a few verses prior to this, he's saying he makes the statement that he can forgive sins. Well, now he takes a step further. Not only does he say he can do it, he offers real forgiveness for real guilt. And he changes this man's life. It's a progression. He's building up to why he's here and the people he's here to call. There's something more here. And this, again, one of the beautiful things aspects of salvation is that Jesus, when he looks at us, 
He sees what we can become when we can't see past our own sin. He looks at us and he sees when we're lost in sin, disfigured, ugly, the world looks at us as, oh, hopeless case. Jesus looks at us and he, yeah, he sees us in sin, but he sees beyond that and he sees what he can make us, what he can become through us what he can transform us into. In Levi, the tax collector, he saw Matthew, the gift from God, which is what Matthew means. He saw an evangelist. He saw a writer. He saw a faithful servant of God when everybody else just saw a man they didn't want anything to do with. That they would just assume God would wipe off the face of the earth. A crook, a robber, no better than any other scum in society. But Jesus saw through all of that He saw his ability to make Matthew what he needed to be, what God wanted him to be. And that's what he sees when he looks at us. Because we're all sinners, but he sees past that to what he can make us. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul tells us we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we would walk in them. No matter how scarred or ugly your life is, Jesus can take All of your failures, all of your mistakes, all of the ugly things in your life, he can take those things and he can make them into something beautiful. I brought this morning post-it notes. How many of you use post-it notes every week? How many of you use one today? Anybody? Yeah, a couple of you. (laughs) Don't forget whatever. Stick it on your mirror or on, I mean, if you work in an office, you definitely use these. They're they're well-known. I mean, everybody uses post-it notes, but did you realize in today the 3M companies who invented these, and today it, post-it notes alone make over $1 billion a year for the 3M company. It's amazing, and other people make them now as well. But did you know that the post-it note came about as a result of a mistake? Today, I mean, they're everywhere. Grocery stores, but it, it, it was a mistake. The 3M company wanted to to develop new glue for the back of their tape. So they, they got one of their scientists to work on this, and he developed a formula for glue for the back of tape, and then he went to try it out to experiment, and he realized it didn't work. It didn't stick. And so he's got this formula that, that's going to be wasted, so he, he gets a group of people together, and he says, listen, I've got this formula, and we're going to have to throw it away unless we find a use for it. So he got a team together, and he says, you guys, your job is to try to take this and to find a use for it. Well, a guy named Art Fry came up with the idea for Post-it notes, and the rest is history. He took a failure, and he came up with a great use for it. I mean, now you go into not just office supply stores, you go into Walmart or you go into to Publix or, I mean, in the grocery store aisle, you're going to find post-it notes. Everybody uses them. We all do. But a failure turned into something incredible. So you and I, our lives are like the post-it note. We need to do what the scientist did. He went to Art Fry and he said, listen, can you take my failure and, and, and make something good out of it? We need to give our failures to Jesus because he can take even the worst of our failures and and, and turn them into something beautiful to be used for God's glory. Even the ugliest parts of our lives, and they can be used for God's glory because God is in the business of doing that. Why does he do that? Because he loves you. I mean, he he created you 
And he loves you enough to where even though you are lost in sin, he wants to buy you back by the blood of his son Jesus. And and he wants to take your life as a mess and make it into something beautiful for his glory, to be used for his glory. Jesus walks into Matthew's office. He sees him there. And when, when, when Matthew looked at Jesus, he saw something that each of us who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior saw when we looked at him. And that's true love like we've never experienced before. He immediately sees what's missing from his life, and he leaves and he never looks back. His life is changed forever, which makes me ask, what, is, what are the people that are outside these walls? What are the people that, that wander into our church or any church? What are they looking for? Well, there are a lot of studies that have been going on lately, in particular in the area of millennials, this, this generation that's entering the workforce, that's beginning to start families. What are they looking for? In church, a recent study found five characteristics, and I just want to walk through these with you. Number one, at the top of the list, what people, what millennials are looking for in a church is authenticity. They want to know that their leaders are honest and forthcoming. They don't want to be, if if they get the sense that you're fake, they're going to turn you off immediately from leaders, but also from the people they interact with. They want engagement. They want primarily with preaching. They want want whoever's preaching, teachers, small group leaders, they want you to engage with the text because if we say it's alive and it's breathing, they want you to interact with it as such. They want to know the facts, but then they want you to show them how to take that text, the gospel, and engage the culture with it. And so they're looking for, for, for preaching and teaching that, that not only draws out the facts, yes, but how do I use it in my daily life? I mean, how does this apply to me? How does it affect me? They're looking for mission. I mean, people today are connected globally, electronically, and, and millennials are the most connected. And so they're looking for, okay, how can I use this to make a global impact? You think they're not missional? They are. They just need a reason for the mission. And they want fellowship because they're connected so electronically, people assume that they don't want face-to-face contact, but the opposite is true. They're craving it. They're craving human-to-human contact. So they want real, genuine fellowship. They want relationships. That's what they're looking for in churches. And they want approachability. They want to, to know when they walk through these doors, listen, they want to know that we want them here. And this affects everything. I mean, and there are different ways we show that from the appearance of the facilities, from the comfort, even the comfort of the seat. (laughs) I mean, this is important. The aesthetics, everything, how we interact with them, the type of music we use in worship, all of these things are sending a message whether we want you or we don't. And, And millennials are looking at this. And if they walk in and they, and, and even my generation, Gen X, that's what we're called. I don't know what that says about us, but X, but that's us. And, and, and it boils down to we want to be wanted. You call that selfish whatever. You agree or disagree with these things, but this is the reality. And it speaks to the, the heart of every human being. Let's be honest, folks. We want to be loved and we want to be wanted. Americans as a whole, Pew Research looked at other outlets too, looked at what just Americans in general are looking for. In every list, two things repeatedly top the list, sermon quality and a warm welcome. People want to be wanted. 
They want to know that we want them. In church and in life, we all want to be loved, plain and simple. That's just how we're geared. We're geared for relationships. We're geared to want to be loved and to show love to others. In our day of consumer-oriented Christianity, our pace of life, our packed work schedule, all the things that go in tend to distract us and to hinder our ability to see the lost and the people in need. People walk in and out of church and we never even know they're here because we're so wrapped up in our own little worlds. We've got to get out of that as Jesus did, and look for those people that nobody else wants to love. And we got to be willing to love the unlovable, to engage people, to show them genuine love. Just like Jesus loved Eli, which brings, or Levi, rather, which brings us to our next point. Friends need our fellowship. The lost need our love. Friends need our fellowship. We're built for relationships. Matthew, he had no regrets about leaving everything to follow Jesus. Again, he found what he was looking for. His life was changed, and and he decides to throw a huge party to celebrate what's happened. Verse 29, he invites all of his co-workers, all of his lost friends. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet, a huge party for him at his house, for Jesus. Now, there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them. Big crowd equals extra people equals more money. This is going to be an expensive party for Levi, but again, he's wealthy. He can do it. He can do it big, so he chooses to do it big. Now, he's not doing this for selfish reasons. He's doing this, first of all, to celebrate what's happened. I mean, his life has been changed. And if there's ever a reason to celebrate, being rescued from hell is a reason to celebrate. Wouldn't you agree? And that's what he's doing. We talked about our Jesus celebration. That's part of this. He's just wanting to celebrate. Another reason is he's wanting to, Jesus is the guest of honor here. He's wanting to give honor to God, to Jesus, for what he's done in his life. And we certainly should do that. Honor him with our lives. Our lives should be a celebration to Jesus. He should be the guest of honor in every area of our lives. The third reason is that he knows that if he was in the situation, if he felt as he did, if he realized his lostness, maybe if he brought some of his other corrupt friends, the other scum of society to this party, and then they interacted with Jesus, just maybe their lives would be changed too. He immediately begins to share what he's experienced with the people immediately around him. And this is where we're reminded that the desire to honor God and share his love are just natural reflexes of someone who's been saved by grace. I mean, when we, our lives are changed, the natural reflex should be, hey, I want to share that with everybody, especially those closest to me. I want them to be saved. And, and while Levi was not a liked person, you can imagine that others in this profession, they probably huddled together because nobody else would. So he did have some friends who were in just as bad a shape as he was, and he wanted them to experience the same grace that he had experienced. It's that way throughout Scripture we see examples. Andrew in John 1, 40 and 41. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. And what does he do immediately? John the Baptist, of course, the forerunner to to Jesus, the Messiah. The first thing he does is he finds his brother Simon and told him, we found the Messiah, which is the anointed one. I mean, John testified to the Messiah. These guys, I mean, immediately... He goes to someone that he's closest to. 
Remember the Samaritan woman's invitation. Her life has changed, and what does she do? She goes, and in John 4, 29, she, she says, Come, see, to the people she knew, come and see the man who told me everything that I have ever done. Could this be the Messiah? She immediately wants everybody to experience what she's experiencing. Matthew knew that if his friends would meet Jesus, maybe they would see in him what he did. Maybe their lives would be changed forever. An important lesson here, when it comes to evangelism, our mission starts with the people that are close to us. Our mission starts, yes, we need to go globally, absolutely. But our mission has to start with the people right around us, with our coworkers, our family, our friends, our neighbors, the people right around us who are lost. It starts with the people we know. I want to show you a picture of a guy named Carter Wilkerson, I believe is his last name. Carter looks like a happy guy, right? Well, Carter loves Wendy's chicken nuggets. <laughs> I myself, my youngest son loves them. I, 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 I can do without them. But Carter loves Wendy's chicken nuggets so much that he tweeted Wendy's. He sent a message asking them, how many likes would I have to get or, or how many shares to his tweet would I have to get to get free chicken nuggets for life? And so what, again, maybe not your cup of tea, and I get that, but Wendy's responded thinking, oh, he'll never do this. They said, you got to get 18 million responses. Well, here's what did happen. No, he didn't get 18 million, but he got 3.4 million people who shared his tweet, who responded. 3.4 million followers. It's the most retweeted post, or they were retweeted, the most retweeted post of all time to this day, 3.4 million. So Wendy's comes back and says, he didn't get 18 million, but great advertisement for us. We're going to give this guy free chicken nuggets for life. And that's why he's standing there holding his certificate for free chicken nuggets for life. Again, I think if I had those kind of powers, I'd use them for something else, (laughs) influence. Maybe chicken nuggets is not your thing, but hey, If a guy can share his love for chicken nuggets with 3.4 million people, can't we at least tell the people right around us about our love for Jesus? And there's, there's, no, there's no quota that we have to fill, but our, what, what Jesus has done for us should drive us to tell everybody that's willing to listen about what he's done in our hearts, in our lives. Matthew, he immediately goes to those people that he knows the most. I, I was lost. I know where I was headed, and these folks are headed the same place. I want them to experience the life change that I've experienced. He immediately tells the people closest to him. Unfortunately, and listen, there's a tendency in, in churches, unfortunately, we tend to kind of get secure. Church tends to become a place where we come to get away from the evils of the world. It's a safe place where we can huddle together. And yeah, it is that, but it can also become a place where we get so insulated that we're ignorant of the people who are lost on the outside and who enter these doors looking for compassion and affection and love, looking for answers. We have to have compassion for the lost. Jesus teaches us one more lesson in this passage As we've seen in several examples, Nehemiah, other examples, people start getting saved, lives get changed, and what happens? Immediately, critics show up to try to hinder. Satan's trying to disrupt the work that's going on. And this time, it's in the form of the Pharisees. They question Jesus' social skills, his etiquette. And here's their motto. Their motto was, no sinners allowed. 
They didn't want, they, they were not going to be associated with any of these evil folks in society. And they drew this in part from other areas, but in part from Leviticus 10.10, which says you must distinguish between the holy and the common and the clean and the unclean. And they took verses like that to the extreme. And yes, before Christ, there was ceremonial clean, cleanliness, cleanness. You couldn't be associated with things that were evil. You shouldn't be, but, but they took it to the extreme. And they developed a concept that was basically salvation by segregation. If I, if I want to stay holy, I've got to get as far away from evil things as possible. That includes people. Where Jesus comes in and he's got a different philosophy. And, and doing things like Jesus did, going to parties with tax collectors and, and saving prostitutes and things of that nature, that was an absolute no-no. Touching lepers and being around lepers, certainly. They were unclean, ceremonially unclean. So they go to Jesus' followers in verse 30, and here's what they say. The Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, how dare you go near these people who are unholy, who are sinful? And tax collectors and sinners are talking about, yes, those Jews who were in sin, but they would have said, hey, at least the Jews have hope because they're Jews. They're also talking about the Gentiles that he associated with, which according to them had no hope. They were godless. I mean, there was no hope for them whatsoever, but Jesus associated with them too. And so he, he's with the worst of the worst, the godless. And by just by being with them, he was defiling himself, according to them. He wasn't, but that's what they thought. And, and by going to a party with them, according to them, he's saying, I agree completely with their lifestyle, but that's not what he was doing. But according to them, that's what they thought. It never occurred to the Pharisees that they were so focused on what Jesus was doing by associating with these people, it never occurred to them but that their separation, lack of concern for these people who were helpless, who were lost, it never occurred to them that that was actually separating them from God. And that it, and it was the case. They were separate from God. They showed no concern. They knew the laws. They studied the scriptures. They studied the book. They, they were in the word, but the word was not in them. They knew the book, but it hadn't changed their lives. They had no compassion, no love for the needy, for the lost. And if you look at the parallel account in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, you see an extra line from Jesus. It's not included in Luke. Verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. It's a reference to Hosea 6.6. 6. For I desire loyalty, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Hosea, like Micah, in Micah 6 is condemning Israel for a lack of compassion, for a lack of concern, for attention to ceremony without the people participating in the, in the ceremony. And this was, this Hosea's words, it's a reference here, Hosea's words were at the heart of Jesus' mission. He came to call the people who knew they were sinners, not those who thought they were righteous. Who knew they, Matthew knew something was missing from his life. And so Jesus was going to the lowest of the low because those were the people who knew they needed something. The Pharisees thought they had it all together. The people that didn't care about the lost weren't only out of sync with Christ, and the Pharisees were. They weren't just out of sync with Christ. They were separate from him completely. They didn't recognize him as who he was. Their lack of mercy was, was in, in their eyes, righteousness, but in God's eyes was a lack of salvation. 
They were separate from God completely. They had no compassion for those around them, those people that, that, that were lost. And, and we see here, they show us perfectly, folks, the difference between religion and being filled with the Spirit. Religious are sectarian. They are separate. They create rules that exclude people. They just go through the motions where those who are filled with the Spirit are loving. They, they want to bring people in, not... not compromise, not agree with their lifestyle, but to reach them for the purpose of bringing them in so that they can have their lives changed like ours have been changed. The Pharisees had taken themselves right out of their faith. If we follow the rules and we do all the right things and we, we say all the right things and we come to church on Sunday and we go to Sunday school, maybe serve on a few committees, we do all these things, our house, our homes are, are, seem to be in order, we can follow all the rules we want to, but rules without love are empty. Just following the rules without, without having your life transformed by the grace of God isn't enough. These guys, they had it all together. They were considered righteous. They were considered holy. They went to church every week, to, to the tabernacle, to the synagogue. They, they would never say a cuss word. I mean, they, they followed all the, the laws on the outside. They considered themselves righteous, and everybody that looked at them would have considered themselves righteous, but they were as lost as lost could be. They were religious. They weren't filled with the Spirit. They weren't loving. They weren't really, they didn't have a desire to follow Christ. And this can happen to us today if we're not careful. If we aren't careful, we can become an elitist group or we can become so secure in the safety of the walls of this church and following the right rules and doing the right things, just making sure everything's checked off on our list that, hey, we're good. We're, we're, we've done everything we're supposed to do, so we're good with God. We can become so focused on the process and the rituals and so enclosed in our security and safety that we ourselves could be lost. That's the first thing you need to make sure of, that you know Christ. But, but second, those of us who are saved, we can become so secure that we forget about the people that are outside the walls. And we forget about the people that are lost in desperate need of salvation. If the church is a club for the socially acceptable and not a hospital for the sick, then we're not doing our job. I mean, this is where sick people need to come to find healing. Just as Jesus did, he would heal them and then he'd say, go, sin no more. He would heal their physical illnesses, but then he'd heal their greatest illness, their lostness. He would give them forgiveness of sin. And that's what we have to offer. Not too long ago, the movie Hacksaw Ridge came out about Desmond Doss, who was a conscientious objector drafted into World War II. And of course, immediately, that's a problem for somebody who, whose religion, his religion taught him he couldn't use violence. That's an immediate problem for him. He couldn't do that, but he, did, he wanted to serve. And so despite a lot of abuse from his fellow soldiers, despite the army trying to get rid of him, he, he continued to serve. He was determined to serve. He became a medic. And ended up, in the Battle of Okinawa, he ended up saving 75 men, according to President Truman. He was a medic, and they were under fire. Nearly every person in his group, all the soldiers in his unit, were cut down. He, they were on top of a cliff. He rigs up a stretcher, and he starts lowering soldiers one at a time under fire himself until every one of them was saved. He got the Medal of Honor. That was just one example of the things that he did that was selfless during his service and during his life, I'm sure. But 75, he said it was more like 50, so he's humble too. He did this one life at a time. 
And, and it just makes me think in this spiritual war that we're in, and we are in a spiritual war, we're going to be taking fire from the enemy. We're, we're going to be at battle every day, in battle every day. We have to keep sharing the gospel. We have to keep reaching people one life at a time until God calls us home. Faithfully, one, changing people's lives one at a time. You, you may not be able to reach the whole world yourself, but you can reach the people around you. One life at a time, one person at a time. Verse 31 of Luke 5, the healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. I've come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Jesus has given us his right. We're not righteous on our own, but he makes us righteous. He gives us salvation. And those who are without Jesus, who are without Christ, they have only one hope. One hope and one hope alone, and that's Jesus Christ. And we have to show them the way to be saved. If you're lost and Jesus is speaking to your heart today, accept that gift of salvation. Don't, don't reject him. If you're saved then your responsibility is to shine your light so that everybody around you can see. And I want to show you one illustration before we get done. A candle. What are candles made for? Candles originally were made to shine light, to shine light in dark places. Before there was electricity, you'd use a candle to see. You'd use a candle to read when it was dark outside. If you're outside or going down a hall, you needed the light to see. But not only you, the people around you could see as a result of the light. We light candles so that we can see. Candles are meant to burn. And whether they're scented candles or not, they are created for the purpose of burning. Now, what they're not created for is to be lit and then to have something placed on top of them. Because what's eventually going to happen here? Eventually it's going to go out. Watch that while I read these verses. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it on its stand and then light a lamp and then put it under a bowl or a mason jar. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This candle was never meant to be covered. This candle's purpose, it was created to shine light. And if it's going to fulfill its purpose, then you can't cover it up. If you're a child of God, he saved you. And yes, he saved you so you could go to heaven. But he also leaves you here on earth so that his light can shine through you. You were created to glorify the Lord. You were created to shine your light. I was created to shine my light to anybody that's willing to see it. And to never give up one life at a time, no matter how heavy the battle, how much under, how under fire, how much fire I take for the rest of my life to shine Jesus' light. That's what we're called to do. Light your world. Start with your neighbor and then go from there. Shine your light. In the end, light outshines darkness. Jesus is in the business of changing lives. And if he's changed your life, shine your light. If he hasn't and he's calling you today, accept that invitation. In just a few moments, we're going to have a time of commitment. You can come talk to me and I'll share with you what you need to do. You don't have to have all the answers. You just have to be willing to say yes to Jesus and he'll show you the rest. Whatever God's calling you to do, let's pray together and you answer that call today. Father, thank you for giving us salvation. Thank you for giving us hope and meaning and purpose in life. Thank you for offering us rescue from sin and death. We don't have to be good enough. We don't have to, to get ourselves fixed up before we come to you. We come to you as we are, 
And then you take us and make us what you want us to be. With all of our mistakes, all the ugliness that is sin in our lives, you take us and you transform us into your image. And you make us usable for your glory and for your purposes. Lord, I I pray that if there's somebody here today who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, who's never accepted that free gift of salvation, that during this time of commitment they would come and make that most important decision, the decision to follow you just as Levi did, just as Matthew did, following you and accepting the life, the salvation that you offer and the life that you have because the life that you have for us is better than anything that we could come up with on our own. Lord, there may be others here today that we've become so wrapped up in our own worlds that we're, we're, not, we're not in tune, we're out of sync with those who are in need. We're not paying attention to those that you place in our lives that are lost in need of a Savior. And I pray that, that, that our attention would, would turn from our circumstances and onto those people, onto you first, but, but, but onto those people who need to know you. Lord, you may be leading others to make other decisions, to join this church family, to be baptized, whatever it is, Lord. I pray that we would respond to you now in obedience because any hesitation in obedience is just disobedience. Lord, may we obey you now while we have the opportunity. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our invitation?